So I'll be reading Exodus 15, 1 through 21 this morning. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your flurry. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy them. You blew them away with your wind. The sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holy, holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand, your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength, by your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of, the Canaan, of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arms, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for the, your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Happy April 15th, Taproot. May this day not be a taxing one. That's about as good as my humor gets, or bad. My name is Glenn, and uh, I'm an elder at this particular church, and this is a great day in my, my story, April 15th. Uh, 
This morning when I woke up, I uh, folded myself in my wife's direction and I gave her a big squeeze and said, uh, I know where you were April 15th, 1982. She wasn't sleeping next to me, but I was with her. She was in a bed and she had spent many, many hours, hard hours pushing and grunting and groaning while I was blowing bad breath at her. And so I was with her, very close to her, uh, as she gave birth to our first daughter, my second lady. And it was just one of the great privileges of my life. <laughs> April 15th is a great day. And this is a week where uh, a good friend of mine, who I haven't known for a long time, but Luis, he's walking down the aisle right now, has had some good news. You want to just share a little bit about it? Please do. <laughs> Entirely unrehearsed. But, uh, yeah, just stand up and tell us just what happened this week. Well, I have my citizenship papers basically went through. It's a big deal. <laughs> Great news. I did. He passed the test, yes. And if I would have had my memory, my mind on my head this, this morning, I would have brought the same flag that uh, we had for him on Friday night. Another good friend, an elder here, Darren, had some great news happen this week. It's just one of these, these weeks where good things have been happening, and so I just feel particularly uh, pleased and proud to be able to share Exodus chapter 15 with you on April 15th. Book of Exodus. It starts off with a real thud, an absolute downer. God's people are slaves in Egypt, and they are being put under God's or Egypt's thumb, and they are being oppressed. It's a picture, it's a passage, it's a story that none of us, I certainly don't enjoy facing. God so allows things to happen that his children, his people, suffer greatly. That's how the book of Exodus starts. And it keeps unfolding that way for 14 chapters. Israel is experiencing pain, humiliation, shame, persecution. Israel is being put under Egypt's thumb, and that's Egypt's intent. Is that not what we've been hearing about for 14 chapters? And yet, as Egypt is trying desperately to maintain Egyptian sovereignty, there is this creator of the universe, this creator God, who keeps bubbling up and effervescing, and he keeps in his own way saying to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, dude, you think you are a dude, and my not friend, you are not. And so there's, it's this tension going on. Who gets to call the shots? Who's the real dude? Is it Egypt, or is it Yahweh, the god of these slaves of Egypt? There's the tension, and Egypt keeps insisting, no, 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 
We are in control. We are the king of the universe. God smiles, and God smiles, but he allows his people to suffer, 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 suffer. And the way the text emerges in the first couple chapters of Exodus is just about all that Israel, enslaved in Egypt, can do is cry out to God. That word tsa'ak, cry out, cry out, cry out. What resources do enslaved, oppressed, persecuted, alienated people have? According to the book of Exodus, they have the resource of crying out to God, and that's what they do. And now, in chapter 15 of Exodus, the whole story, the whole oppression story has been reversed. It's now clear that Egypt isn't what Egypt thought Egypt was. That's the point. And so after 14 chapters of tension, one of the most significant things is literarily prose stops and poetry begins. Poetry and music. Now, is there some prose? Yes, there is a little bit. But Exodus chapter 15 is very, very signally an attempt to say, stop. For a short season, the oppression, the crap, the chaos is over. Right now, God says, I will give you a short period of time to stop and rest. But the rest needs to look a peculiar, certain, particular way. The rest is not for you to take a snooze. The rest is not for you to read a book, to watch a game. The rest is for you, Israel, to take some precious time to celebrate. To celebrate what God has done in the past 14 chapters because God has exodused you. Okay? He has brought you out very, very intentionally out of the control of Egypt he has just annihilated an entire division or brigade of the Egyptian army, the charioteers. You've just seen it, and now what's left for you is huh, to celebrate what's happened. And by the way, let me tell you, let me show you, Israel, the only way you can do this fittingly is with music and with poetry. The verb sing the noun song and some synonyms for music occur a bunch of times in the opening part of the chapter and at the end part of the story. Why? That leads us to a very, very significant question. Why did God create poetry? Why did God create music? By no means do I believe that humankind created these things. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. God created these things. Okay? Now, I could give you time to, to, we could discuss this, but I'm supposed to be talking to you in a one-directional fashion. That's, ugh. okay. So, my conclusion is that God created music and poetry because both are languages. 
both their languages, as is human speech, three different languages. I'm not referring to language like Hebrew, Greek, English, Portuguese, Spanish. I'm referring to modes of communication as languages. Okay. One of them is the mode of words, prose, telling stories. Another is the very language of what those drums do, what those keyboards do, what the strings do, what the voices do. You put all that stuff together with tambourines, with rhythm, with kinds of movement, and voices fitting together in certain ways, and the words structured poetically, it just does something that normal words can't do. We all know that. Let me give you an example. Quite a few of you know me fairly well, but very, very few of you know me what I am like when my heart is just flooding and I want to go into the zone of music, okay? There's a girl over there, name's Haley Rose. She's the one who was born on April 15th, okay? She and her brother and her mom, they've seen me on Sunday mornings. They've seen me at times when I'm particularly emotional. And I tell you, I, I have no idea what you think of elders. Uh, I'm an elder both by age, I guess, and by, by social calling. But when Glenn is listening to music and when Glenn is emotional, the volume's cranked. <laughs> I just pump it right up there as, as, as high as I can comfortably pump it. Haley Rose, am I telling the truth? Yep, yep. Okay, and uh, I don't know if pastors and elders are supposed to be particularly solemn. Uh, I'm not, I don't think. And so when I, there's just something about me when I want certain songs that I love, I want those things cranked up as loud as they can. And I, with all of the rhythm and all of the vocal ability that I don't have, okay, I just crank it up and I get lost in the, in the music. And I go dancing around and you would never call it dancing because nobody would. <laughs> but it feels that way to me and I get the privilege of being lost in the world of that poetry and music and the God and the truth that it's communicating about. You can relate to that, can't you? Okay. It is not at all accidental that the Egypt story in the Exodus ends with poetry and music because God says, I want you to celebrate this. I want you to celebrate this in a way that you will not forget it. So man, use music, use poetry, use everything at your disposal and let it rip. Okay. Is it accidental that a lady, Miriam, who happens to be a prophetess, who up to this point has no name in the book of Exodus, thus far she's only Moses' sister who stands by the bulrushes there and saves her brother. She's only a savior. She's only a liberator. But she's a savior liberator with no name. But now, at this great highlight of the story of release from Egypt, this sister, who was also a prophetess, she picks up a tambourine and she copies, she picks up the same worship stuff that her two brothers have just led the people in, and she starts playing. And she starts playing, and a whole bag of women, the whole group of women, 
pick up with her, and they start dancing and singing. Yeah! Boy, would I like to have been there. How many women were doing that? I mean, 2,000, 10,000, 100,000, 500,000? I don't know, but I wish I could go back and see it. Because that was a very, very cool event. God is a God who allows his people, he always has, allowed his people to go through very, very intense pain for purposes that are great, greater than his people. And then at times, he gives us moments of respite, moments, moments of rest from the big thumb, the big stick of Egypt or the Egyptian equivalent. And those moments of rest are created and designed for us to celebrate him, the way he has demonstrated himself in the past. Again through? Cool. The chapter, the story, is not only about the deliverance from Egypt. About halfway through the poetry, the subject changes, and Moses then starts thanking God, not for what God has done in the past, but he starts thanking God for the future exodus that is going to occur after they pass over from Africa into Asia, and as they start moving up into smaller Egypts. Three countries are mentioned. And Moses, as he tells, as he sings, as he reflects on the nature of his God, which is what this poetry and this reflection is all about, who is the God who brought us out of slavery? Who is the God who is going to take us into chaos once again? And he's going to force us, in a sense. He is going to move us to, into the land of Egypt clones. And as he prays, as he sings, as he creates poetry, he's given prophetic information and he says, those people are going to melt they are going to experience utter terror because of the God, the God of the Exodus. So after 14 chapters, there's a day of rest for celebrating what God has done in the past and what God is going to do in the future. Now, I'm going to take a couple minutes and try to unpack a word that is, just spreads its fingers all the way through this chapter. It really spreads its fingers all the way through this book. The word you've heard of before, chaos. You know that word, right? Chaos, the word chaos doesn't show up in Exodus 15. Now, the word chaos shows up in Exodus 15. Get it? Just poetically. And our problem is that Moses you expresses the notion of chaos poetically, metaphorically in ways that were known back in those days in ways that don't make sense to us today. So my job here for the next couple minutes is to try to alert us to the signposts of chaos and then another minute or two to the feelings of chaos. Okay. So you might remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 
Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's kind of a, it's, it's like a big caption for the, to open up the book. Verse 2 then immediately changes and it starts talking about the deeps, the depths, and the seas. And says the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God was hovering over the depths. Okay? The depths, the tahom. Chaos. The depths and the seas in the ancient Near East, those were words that people understood. They equated with chaos in ways that we don't equate them with. So as you reflect on Exodus 15 and what God did as he demonstrated himself to be a man of war and as he demonstrated himself to be a man who was completely incomparable to all else, Every time that you read the word ocean or sea or depths, then please substitute in there the notion of chaos. Got that? Now, so what? Am I just talking theological language here? Boy, uh-uh. We know very, very much about chaos. We're just not used to talking about chaos as chaos. Chaos is the human experience when life itself is so is unlivable. Okay. When Genesis 1-2 rolls around, it says people could not live there because life was inhabitable. Love, life was not livable. That's the kind of the opening uh, verse of, of the Genesis story. And what do I mean by life is not livable? I'm going to give you some examples. Let's say that you are a human being who is about two months old. Okay? And you cannot speak. Uh, there are just a ton of things that you cannot do. But you, and your, your brain is not fully developed, but you do have a brain. And you have feelings. You can't express them, but you have feelings. Am I right? What is your experience like? If your mom and your dad, or whoever your caregivers are, don't attend to you, what are your feelings like if mom and dad seldom change your diapers? What is your experience like if it's very, very erratic if you're even fed? You are not a source of attention. Our answer is we don't know. In a certain way, we don't know because we can't enter into the head. But we do know that there are little infants out there who are unresponsive when adults come into their presence, right? Yeah. I have a friend, a teacher of mine, who came into class. He, was, they were, he and his wife were, were foster parents. They'd done that for a long, long time. And he came into class one day. He was bawling his eyes out because they had a foster child. And Sandy, the wife, they had somebody holding this baby 24-7. Even during the night, they kept watch to hold the baby. And that particular morning, just before class, the baby had hunkered in a little bit. One action that that baby felt something about being home. See, that baby 
was experiencing prior chaos. That baby cannot talk, could not talk, but that baby knew, tasted chaos. I can give you some horrid stories about chaos, but chaos is, it's, it's very, very largely a reality that creates a sensation. Now, imagine yourself now as an 11-year-old boy, and your mom is a single mom, and you and your mom and your siblings are driving down a road close to Yelm, okay? And you don't know what you did, but your mom yells, she shrieks, she stops the car, and she tells you to get out of the car. And so you get out on that highway down there close to Yelm, and your mom takes off. And I don't know if it's five minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes later, you begin to wonder, I wonder if she's coming back. The chaos there is that I'm all alone. I'm 11 years old. That, that thing that grabs you, that is chaos. Do you get it? Chaos is what happens that we, that we experience with some frequency in our own culture here where, where you're often in a shopping center or someplace that just seems normal and then someone opens up with gunfire and you say, my Lord, I can't even, I can't trust. I can't even go shopping without the possibility of being shot at. Okay? Chaos is this something or other that says, this is more than just bad stuff. This is when, when you get gripped with, I do not know if life is livable. That's what chaos is about. And our God says Genesis chapter 1, is a God who very fully intends to make life livable. He wants to reverse things and order things in such a way that unlivable life becomes beautifully livable life. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, Moses and Miriam and all of these people are celebrating the fact that God has shown himself to be a God who gives livable, ordered life. And so they need their tambourines and their music and their poetry and everything because God has done this. Is that, is that sinking through? Okay. You know you have tasted chaos. Okay. And you know how terrifying it is. Okay. So how does the text then present the God that we lift up? There's a verse early on in the chapter that says, Yahweh is... Highly exalted. <laughs> I am a person who, for some weird reason, has spent most of my adult life reading the Bible in its original languages. So I'm a Greek guy and I'm a Hebrew guy. And I, this is going to sound like bragging. I very, very seldom read the Bible in English. Okay? And so the, basically the only time that I read the Bible in English is when I'm comparing translations. That's just the way this weird, goofy mind of mine works. Okay, So when I get to this statement here, when it says, Yahweh is highly exalted, the Glenish way of looking at that text is, say, that doesn't take me anywhere. It's not language that just lights me up. Uh, but... When I go over to my, grab my, my, my Hebrew text and, and, and the text 
it introduces me to a, a word that I love. Okay? And it says, the Yahweh is Ga'aga'on. Okay? Doesn't mean anything to you. But it does to me, and it did to the original writers. Because the idea of highly exalted is the idea that our God is a God of completely different category. Okay? Now, let me see if I can illustrate this. Most of us have heard of a hill in the state of Washington called Capitol Hill. Yeah? Or we could go Queen Anne Hill. Okay? Now, what do you think of comparing Queen Anne Hill to Mount Rainier? There's not a lot of comparison, is there? Okay? Most of you have heard of a basketball player that my son worshipped back in the decades. His name was, still is, Michael Jordan. Okay? My son loved Michael Jordan. Okay? And he could do things. He could jump from the top of the free throw, the top of the key there, all the way and dunk the ball. He's famous for that, is he not? Okay? Now, probably a bunch of you don't care a lick about Michael Jordan. Probably a bunch of you don't care a lick about basketball. Okay? But let's just do a little bit of comparing. Would basketball be interesting if there was a ball player who not only could dunk the ball from the top of the key, but could dunk the ball from the rim at the other end of the court? If a guy, if they put all five defenders on this guy, climbing all over him, and he could just and he could make a three-point from the other end of the court, right-handed or left-handed, basketball would cease to become interesting, would it not? <laughs> there would be no challenge, okay? Now, you and I are used to... I had a friend in college who... <laughs> boy, you're going to laugh at me. I was in the PAC division of NCAA back when it was called the PAC-8, okay? And so I had a good friend. <laughs> His name was Claude Terry, and he was an all-pack eight guard, six-six guard. <sniffs> okay. And so oftentimes Claude and I would go out to the basketball court, and we, he would he would he would condescend to me, and we would play one-on-one. -on -one. And I was a, I'm a pretty good shot. I was pretty quick, six-two. Yuck. Okay? And so Claude and I would go out there, and I could punch that guy. I could push him. I could do just about anything, and he would go, kush, kush, kush. And if he and I were playing one-on-one, -on -one, I mean, I would get cremated. And there are ways in which you could say there's no comparison. But we were at least on the same court. Making sense? When we're talking about Ga'aga'on, saying God is highly exalted, friends, there's no comparison. That's what Moses is trying to say. Yahweh, in comparison to Egypt, there's no comparison. Why? Because he is a God who is a warrior God. He's a God of war, but he doesn't do war normally. And if he wants to destroy the, the chariot division of the Egyptian empire, he doesn't take them on. He just has them go out into the middle of a sea, and he says, sea, collapse in on him. Doesn't feel like that's a very fair battle. 
And that's the whole point. Because Egypt thought that Egypt was the cat's meow. <laughs> and God said, <laughs> you're welcome to think of you. I, I can wipe you all out just by saying, see, close up. Okay. And so Israel's people then gets an opportunity after 14 chapters of wandering around in stress, in chaos, and in tension to reflect. And God's leaders, Moses and then his sister Miriam, they create words and they dance and they sing and they tell the story. They tell the story. People need to tell their God stories. Right on? And they need to tell their God stories in such a way that they reflect on the nature, the kind, the characteristics of God. Yes? You read this particular story, Moses never mentions himself. He tells his story in such a way that God is lifted up as being utterly incomparable. He's the Gaon guy. And I stand before you today saying that you are a continuation of Israel. God, just as he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, you have your own Egypt, your own pilgrimage, your own exodus to come out of it. And God fully intends to lead you through it and when he gives you brief moments in time for rest, to celebrate, to sing, you use your time to the greatest possible use by reflecting on what God has done and reflecting on what he's like. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. So, now, another word. I've given you this one word, chaos, which you have known about, but maybe not have known about. Now I'm going to give you a word that, uh, that is all, it's saturating the text, and it's a word that you may not be familiar with. It is the word ineffable. Ineffable is a very, very important thing. And I'm going to try to illustrate it through a lady who I don't see here today. Uh, she illustrated it for us right there a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Erica, Erica Jessero. Erica, you're not here, are you? Okay. So there was a baptism going on, and I had the best seat in the house. I was right there. And I got to see all of you guys, and I got to see her and the, the moms coming up, and I got to see all the kids leave their seats and come up and just sort of be right around. And as Erica, whose child was, was baptized, came up... <laughs> It was fascinating because the girl was, you couldn't tell what she was like, but you could tell what she was like. There were no words coming out of her mouth, but she was this beautiful, weird combination of smiling like only a mom can smile and bawling. Why? Because Erica Jessero loves God. I don't know her very well, but her child was getting baptized. Her child was making a public step of faith in and movement towards God. And Erica was so jazzed that she was crying and, and laughing, smiling at the same time. 
because she was experiencing that which is beyond the ability of words to communicate. She was experiencing the ineffable. Got it? And so one of the reasons why we gather together on Sunday mornings and we have these people who practice their instruments, who are good at their skills, they bring it all together, not because they're trying to impress us or because they're trying to build a, have, uh, a thriving church that, that does great music. Well, they are trying to do those things, I hope. But their main reason for existence is to come up here and lead us in a language that we utterly need because we are not capable of describing our gods with our words on, our God with our words only. We need the ineffable, therefore we bring music to take us places that words alone cannot take us. Yeah! And that's what's experienced here, and that's the way our God is, that he is, in a certain sense, containable. We can talk about him. We can package him a little bit, but he doesn't fit. He's too big for our words. And so we need all the different languages that we can get to somehow or other access the ineffable. And we need it. And when we get to taste it, when we get to live out this ineffable, we move closer to God and we get buzzed. And we with this, woo! Because it gets us a little bit closer to the very nature of our God. Hmm. Okay. There's no way that I can share with you all the cool stuff that's in this chapter, so I'm going to try to move into some implications. The text tells us that God invites us to tell our stories, that God invites us to tell our God story, and through the very example, God invites us to tell our story with all of the languages that we have available to us, and one of the languages being music, okay? Now, men, please do not raise your hand. Please do not uh, humiliate yourself. <laughs> men, are we typically people who are known for being emotionally rich? No, we aren't. Men, are we famous? for how much we love to sing. Okay, there are men who sing. Men, are we infamous for saying, ah, I'm uncomfortable around music. Are we, do we excel more in that, that category? <laughs> Women, do you want to answer the question? Okay, now, Perhaps this is Glenn, Glenn's chauvinism. Maybe it's, maybe it's Glenn's male genderism kind of speaking. But there is something in me that believes, right or wrong, that we men are influencers. And we have the power to squash. And we have the power to control family dynamics. And we have the power to poo-poo to minimize <laughs> uh, music, singing, stuff that doesn't feel very masculine. And what I would like to ask you, I'm inviting you to accept, is that as you and I, because of our 
refusal to enter into that which makes us uncomfortable, that we're cutting our own throats. We are designed, we need to emote in ways that go beyond Seahawks on Sunday. There's just one thing that we men feel safe emoting in the sports world, like we don't feel safe emoting in other places. And I, I'm all for the Seahawks or the Sounders or whatever you call it, the Timbers, is that what you call them? <laughs> okay. What I'm asking us to do is to follow our Lord Jesus Christ into a very, very rich emotional life full of the expression of the feelings of loving God. Okay. I'm asking us to accept that as we repress, as we suppress, as we minimize the zone of emotions, we are minimizing the way God created us. Is that getting through? Please accept that, and please, I think it's utterly okay, it's utterly beautiful for you to say, I'm no good at this but I want to become good, or at least better, okay? Now, let me give you an illustration. Glenn Johnson, I've lived in Brazil for 12 years. I have tasted percussion in Brazil. I have tasted samba, I have tasted drums, and I just really, really wish that I could, I mean, one of my dreams, probably some of you have heard this story, I've tried to actually do a ridiculous little wager with God. Okay? If God would infuse me with rhythm, and when I get to go to heaven, if there is such a thing as a conga choir, I want to be in it. <laughs> but it'll only work if you'll give me the rhythm so I can do it. Okay? I am a lousy, lousy rhythm guy. A couple of weeks ago, I was with Will Trainer, and he, we were just in a meeting, and he just did some rhythm stuff, uh, kind of finishing up a meeting, and I just, uh, <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> okay, what I'm trying to say is it's utterly fine for us to say I'm lousy at something, but I still enjoy. I'm okay being a lousy rhythm guy, but let me in with you guys who are better so I can hitch up my wagon with you. Yes? Our God is a God who wants us to tell our story with every language that is available to us. And where I, where I want to kind of close up here is to say the chief enemy of us celebrating our God, telling our story in the richest, most thoroughgoing way possible, I believe, is restraint. See if I can give you some examples. Nothing is allowed to make me look like a fool. If something's going to make me look like a fool, I'm not comfortable. I'm not going to do it. Resonate? Nothing may take me out of my comfort zone. You try to take me out of my comfort zone, nothing doing. I'm out of here. I may have to stay physically with you, but I'm sitting and I'm not joining you. Resonating? Hmm. Nothing emotionally painful is permitted. 
okay? Hey, you mess with me, and you try to get me scooching. You try to get me wiggling in my chair. You try to get me dealing with intense joy or intense pain. I don't like it. I am not feeling comfortable. I'm out of here. I may have to stay here, but I'm resisting you. Hmm. Another one. Nothing that I don't want to happen may happen. Okay. Do any of us know anything about these beliefs? Okay. Well, what happens if God says, hey, Glenn, I want you to go do something because of your love for me that puts you in a discomfort zone? God, or God says to me, Glenn, Glenn, I want you to go over and talk to those people over there, and there's a distinct possibility that you're going to be ridiculed. Okay. I've had the experience of going on to the University of Brasilia and giving a, a lecture and just absolutely being uh, defiled and ridiculed and humiliated. Interesting, not because of being a Christian, though I was, I was labeled as a Christian. I, what I was ridiculed there for was being a capitalist because I'm American. Okay? And so that was just a case where that's something that I had to do. Okay? Now, there are plenty of times when our God says, I want you to go do something that may threaten you, that may take you into a zone of insecurity. Please don't resist me because of your confounded, stubborn P-R-I-D-E. Got it? Okay. Pride. <clears throat> Exodus teaches us something about pride. Egypt personifies on steroids pride. Egypt is the epitome of pride. God snuffs out pride. You will read Egyptian pride right there in, in Exodus 15 when those Egyptian charioteers are going to say, we're going to smush those guys. We're going to take their booty. We are going to plunder them. You can just, we are, we are, we are. I'm going to. Pride, pride, pride. Egyptian pride just dominates Exodus 1 through 14. And when you and I, being followers of Jesus Christ, when you and I prefer Egyptian pride, over son and daughter of God humility, we align ourselves with Egypt instead of with our God. And that's a tragedy for us. Now, let's place ourselves just for a moment in the person of the Son of God, who if there is ever someone who has the deserves to be proud, if there is anyone who is high and exalted, it is Jesus Christ. Not because he insists on being it, but because he just simply is. He chooses to leave the best place in the universe, heaven, to come down to earth. He chooses to be made a fool of. He chooses to suffer on the cross, the most humiliating, shameful instrument at, dis at the disposal of the Roman Empire. Does he not? He doesn't want to go through the suffering, even though he came here to suffer. He asks his father, if it's possible, I would like to be excused from this. But he says, Father, even though that's what I want, I want what you want more. Can you sense, can you feel this humility? Can you see him opposing the, the, the tendency towards pride? That's what he's doing. Okay. 
And so please, 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 when you and I are tempted to get our feelings hurt, our noses bent out of shape, okay, in most cases, when your feelings are hurt, the hurt feeling complex is really North American code for my pride has just been wounded. Okay? I, I'm not very, it's not very common for me to say my feelings are hurt when someone has, has wounded my humility. I, that doesn't resonate. But my shame and my pride, ooh, now that resonates. Okay. So God gives us respites, times to celebrate his miraculous, incomparable greatness. And then we reflect on him and we choose to step into humility, willing to go anywhere the Father wants us to go. And that is our salvation. That is our mission the final thing that I want to call attention to is it's not only our salvation, it's not only our mission, but it then becomes our destination. One of the things that Exodus 15 talks about is it talks about a sanctuary. And it talks about a sanctuary that is also a hill or a sanctuary that is a mountain. Okay? And the text, Moses is, gosh, he's saying, you have a place reserved for us that is very much like a home. It is also very much a mountain. And so Moses places himself into the theology, the developing theology of the book of Exodus. And it's saying, get ready for the tabernacle that's just about to be introduced in about five or six chapters. And by the way, you're right underneath Mount Sinai. That's where things are happening. Okay, so you've got the tabernacle down below, you have the mountain, you are on your way to the promised land, you're on your way to Jerusalem, which is on a hill where the tabernacle is going to become a temple, and if you want to fit this into the overall unfolding pattern of the Bible, go to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, where the Garden of Eden is linked with the tent the holy tent called the tabernacle, which is linked with what the tabernacle turns into, the temple, which is linked then with the entire city of Jerusalem in heaven. <gasps> the abode, the home is heaven, which is the temple in Jerusalem, which is the traveling tent tabernacle that occurred during the, the years of wandering, which is the old Garden of Eden. And so Moses, as he reflects on all of this, he says, wow, I want to celebrate the God who invites me into humility, who also invites me not into the zone of humility, but invites me into the place of Garden of Eden, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle tent. Later on, he's going to introduce me into the temple, and then later on, the ultimate temple. Exodus 15 is a time for Moses and his sister and all of the peoples to celebrate their story, their past, and their future heritage. And you get to step into the story. Because God invites you to hitch your wagon to your exodus out of Egypt and into the new home.
if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, sheer logic, logic, the story, calls you to become a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you are inconsistent, first all of us, then you are invited to remember this story, your story. Okay. Closing thought. Closing. There are tons of times when God is not going to apparently save you. Tons of times when God is going to leave you in 14 chapters of muck. 14 chapters of not feeling God's presence. Okay. What I believe to be true is that the 15th chapter of Exodus, the time of telling this story with all languages possible, is designed to inject something, some, some go juice into you. So that times when you are the weakest, you're having told the story then, equips you to go into Exodus 16 when you continue on the battle and things appear pretty grumbly. Okay. So those times of stopping to celebrate give you some antidote for times when you are very, very disinclined to tell your story worshipfully. May God bless you in your pilgrimage out of Egypt, into God's presence, and into the battle against Egypt, against Edom, against Moab, against the Philistines. May God bless you.